Gospel of John is a, is a, it's really long, it's 20-something chapters, and, and so it's going to take me a long time to get through that, so I do want to let you know that we're going to be taking breaks uh, throughout the next year or so to do different things. There's, a, there's a, several things I want to uh, talk about, just to let you guys know. Uh, I want to take two or three sermons to talk about the nature of worship and what it is, specifically what Sunday morning worship is and how that kind of plays into things. Um, also want to talk about what I call the enemy trinity, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, love to, we're going to spend a little bit of, like, just probably three or four sermons. And then in the fall, uh, I'm really going to spend probably at least six times talking about the issue of forgiveness, right? And then what it is biblically, and then specific, particularly how we extend it to each other and how God plays into all that, okay? So just seeing this, that issue come a lot. Uh, uh, but the question this morning as we dive into the book of John, I am really excited about it, is why, why study the book uh, of, the John, of, of John? And uh, so why we're studying the book of John is, is very simple. Um, I think that the book of John is the most comprehensive answer to the question, who is Jesus? Okay? Uh, the most comprehensive answer to the question, who is Jesus? And I would also argue uh, that the most central question that you can ask in your life is that question, who is Jesus? I, that's the most central question. Now, you may argue that of all the questions that we have to ask in life, how can you make an argument that who is Jesus is the most important question that we should be asking? I actually don't think it's that hard uh, to make the case, and here's why. If you, got, if you get any uh, few ladies or, or gentlemen together in a room and ask them this question, name your top four most influential people in the history of the world. Okay, So we're assuming that they know a little bit about history, right? And they're intellectual people. Jesus Christ will be on every single list regardless of whether or not the people actually believe that he is who he says he is, or that the biblical Jesus is actually who Jesus was, you, you can't help but notice that he is, I think, arguably, easily, arguably, the most influential man in the history of the world. But he at least makes everyone's top four, along with guys like Muhammad, Buddha, and Karl Marx would make the top ten, right, on any of those lists. The interesting thing about those, about Jesus on that list, is Jesus is the only person in the top ten list that claimed to be God and got away with it. Make no mistake, there have been plenty of people throughout history to claim to be God. And there will be in the future. But he's the only one to claim to be God and to keep his influence without being dismissed as a crazy man or a quackpot. None, nobody else on that list would, right? And so the reality is, how are you going to deal with the fact that Jesus Christ was one of the most in, was, is arguably the most influential person in the history of the world, and he claimed to be God? If you're going to be responsible at all, intellectually, you've got to deal with that question. John answers that question for us according to what the, uh, the Bible teaches. Um, there's also a claim about Jesus, um, and I use this uh, all the time when I'm talking to people. I, I love it just because I think it helps stir people and, and to think about what they're thinking about. A lot of people, 
uh, especially these days, will claim that Jesus was a good man. And he was a great moral teacher, but I can't believe that he was God. Um, you know, whenever we talk about God being deity, we mean that he is actually God. Whenever we say he's divine, we're talking about the fact that he is actually God. God, John here is saying that he is actually God. You can't say he's a good moral teacher because people who are good and moral don't claim to be God. C.S. Lewis does what I think is the best I've read on pointing this out. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, um, the person who says, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. And we've heard that a lot. Maybe you're in that place right now. This is what C.S. Lewis says, That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of things, Jesus would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Who is Jesus? He's evil, or he's God. Two choices. John spells that out for us. And I think this is the most serious issue facing all of humanity, and in particular the church. Uh, yesterday, uh, I went, drove to Savannah, and bought a, a canoe, right? I'm looking for a canoe that I can take a couple guys out in, and we can go fishing. And uh, I'm speaking with the guy, and uh, one of the things I've been teaching my kids as they played basketball was uh, Wayne Gretzky's quote, which was, you, make 100, you miss 100% of shots you don't take. Right, so I've been beating that drum all basketball season. Shoot the ball, shoot the ball, shoot the ball. And I was actually convicted about that myself. Like in, in, in my opportunities that I have with people, am I shooting the ball? Am I, am I trying to get the gospel out to people? And so I was convicted about that. So um, I've received some really good training, and I just, in a very easy and conversational way, was able to get into a conversation with this guy. We, with the total time we were together was maybe 20 minutes, you know. Knew I was never going to see him again, so I figured, you know, why not shoot the ball? And so we, we, I got finally to the question of, hey, you know, what's your spiritual story? Just real quick, I know we're probably about to head inside, it's about to rain, but what's your, what's your spiritual story? He said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, oh cool. And I asked the question, who is Jesus to you? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, do, is, do you believe that he did all the miracles and walked on water and fed 5,000 people with, with a few fish and rose again from the dead and that he was the son of God? And he said, no, not really. Right? And then that brought us into the conversation. Well, that's actually what the Bible says he is. And you're defining him a different way. I think you need to reevaluate that. Right? So it ended up going to a good conversation, but the thing that's interesting to me is here's a guy that instantaneously without the step without a bit of hesitation said, "I'm a Christian. I just don't believe in what the Bible says about Jesus." Right? Uh, I saw a study uh, a couple years ago about, uh, about uh, this church, big big church, and um, there was a girl, there were a lot of people in there, and they were worshiping through singing, and like it was, it, was, it was great, it was a good thing. And then they interviewed several of the people coming out of the worship, I think it was a secular newspaper, um, 
And uh, they came out, and we're just, we're just, I think, curious about this phenomenon of all these young people worshiping God. And so they asked the girl this question about, about um, Jesus and, and about how she loved him. And she said, oh, I love him. I just love to come sing. He's just done made such a difference in my life. And then, she, and then he asked her, he said, do you believe in what the Bible says about homosexuality? And she said, absolutely not. Well, who is Jesus to you then? Is he God and king of the universe or not? Because if he is, that has some serious implications What's interesting about both of those people is I think at the, prob- the root of their problem is that they have created Jesus in their own image instead of actually examining who he is. Voltaire said that, I mentioned this last week, that in the, in the beginning God created man in his own image and we have been trying to repay the favor ever since. Many of us have seen artistic depictions of Jesus and a lot of times, and probably most times, those are actually more unhelpful than they are helpful, Right? But when you see a picture of Jesus, because we don't have a physical description in, in the Bible who he is, except he grew up. That's all we know. He was born and he grew up, right? So he was not a midget. That's, that's literally the only thing we know about Jesus in terms of physical. And, um, but those are the artistic expressions of Christ, and oftentimes they come with a, with, a, with a preconceived notion about who he is. And we do that in our own hearts all the time, whenever we conceive of something. And what I, the reason I give you this kind of a long introduction is because what we have spelled out in the first five verses of the Gospel of John is an absolutely powerful, magnificent, and jam-packed description of the magnitude of who Jesus is. Okay? So let's read it together this morning. First five verses of the Gospel of John. It's printed in your order of worship if you need that, but this is God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. And through Him all, that, all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Lord in heaven, as we consider your word, as we worship you over your word, I do pray, God, that you would bless us with understanding, conviction, and rejoicing. Uh, help us in our worship, and I pray that you take the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together and make it pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Here's a big idea today. If Jesus is God, then he is the only one to lay legitimate claim on your life. If Jesus is who he says he is, if, the, if what I just described to you or read to you in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is true, if he is God, if he has always existed, if he is a second person of the Trinity, if he is, if he is all-powerful and all-knowing and all of these things, if that is true about, he, about who he is, then he has a legitimate claim upon your life. And it means that we need to reorder our values and think about what the reason of life is. Is. And what my goal for this morning is, is threefold as we talk these few minutes. One, I want to show you the, the, the truth of who Jesus is. Number two, I want you to rejoice in the reality of it. This really is good news. Okay. And number three, I want you to realize that there is no better life than in the service of this God. Okay. Three points this morning. The fullness of Jesus' divinity... 
the struggle with Jesus' divinity and then the implication of Jesus' divinity or the fact that he's God, okay? The fullness, why we struggle with it, and then the implications. First of all, uh, the reality of Jesus' divinity. One of the things I wanted to tell you about the Gospel of John that's interesting is that the man who wrote this, this Gospel, right, who wrote this book, as we like to call it, um, of the Bible, uh, was not uh, a, a biographer who tangentially knew Jesus or just read a lot of things about Jesus. This is one of his own disciples, the Apostle John, someone that would be, of all of the people that he knew in the world, you could consider John to be Jesus' best friend. He, he describes himself throughout the book as the one with whom Jesus loved. That's the title that he gives himself. At the Last Supper, uh, John is is leaning up against Jesus' chest. And if you think about it, uh, there aren't many people that you know that well that you'd be comfortable with that level of intimacy, right? That they're just going to recline up against you. So this is someone who is very, very, very close uh, to Jesus, and he died for these teachings. You're not going to die for a set of teachings that you know to be false. Just, no one's going to do that, right? Um, and he, and he, he uh, suffered so much. He was in exile, um, in slave labor on the island of Patmos for a, almost the last half of his life. And this is what he writes in a letter that he wrote, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You'll see he calls Jesus the word in that passage as well. But notice what he says. I touched him, I ate with him, I saw him, I knew him. It's not an abstract idea. About, I'm writing about a person that lived 400 years ago. I touched him and I knew him. Okay, uh, I, I knew him. All right. So the reality of, of who Jesus is. Here's what we're going to talk about uh, as we look at these five verses. Under this heading, the reality of Jesus' divinity. We're going to look at the eternality, the fact that Jesus always existed. We're going to look at Jesus as the Word. Jesus as God, the divinity. Him, the author of life, and then the light of the world. Okay? All right? The light of the world is mostly going to be next week's sermon. We'll just touch it barely. All right? But the first thing is the eternality of Jesus, right? In the beginning was the Word. Now, the reason that John wrote this book, he tells us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Listen to this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. In other words, I haven't told you the whole story. There are other things that I could have said about Jesus that is not included in the Gospel of John. But then in verse 31 he says, But these things, but these are written, so that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing it you may have life in His name. John wrote this book for Jews who were struggling to, to, to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They were looking for a Jesus that wasn't that was looking for, a, rather, a Messiah that wasn't like Jesus. Jesus messed up their paradigm of what a Messiah was going to be like. John's writing to them. John's also writing to Greek-minded people who, who, who did not think that Jesus uh, is who he says he is, was, was the Messiah. And he's also, writing, he's also writing to believers to encourage them and to, and to build their understanding about who it is that they're worshiping, Okay. So the first thing in the beginning calls the attention to one of his audiences, which is the Jews. That's why we read Genesis 1 this morning in our Old Testament Scripture reading. It's the exact same language. 
In the Greek version of the Bible, same words. In the beginning, word. That that God created, I hope you notice as Josh was reading, that, that God created everything with His mouth. He spoke it into existence. And then He is called here and given the title of the Word. Bringing that Jewish audience in and just putting an explanation point on the fact that He is God. Because they were, cons- they were confused about what kind of Messiah that they should be looking for. And John writes that, uh, that's really one of the main emphasis of this book, is John doesn't simply claim that Jesus is the Messiah, but he says, what kind of Messiah should you be looking for? He's broadening their definition and showing them, actually, the definitions that you've made for the Messiah aren't the ones that the Bible makes for the Messiah. That the Messiah that was supposed to come is actually Jesus himself. And then he's also, in that first few verses, calling the, atten- the attention of the Greeks. That word in the Greek word, it means logos. And the word logos was a signal for the philosophers talking about the reason of life. Whenever everyone would get together and try to figure out what the point of life was, they put all of that under this category of the word logos. Okay? And so they, they, people were getting together, and, and the philosophers of the age, and they were, tr- they were discussing what philosophers have always discussed and will continue to always discuss, which is what is the meaning of life. And so they were all trying to figure out what is the logos of life. And by the time Jesus comes, they've debated what the Logos is of life so much that they they don't even know what it is anymore. It's extremely important for them to know uh, what it is, what's the meaning of life, and they've debated it for so long that there's tons of fracturing and disagreement over what it is that many of them had given up the search. And they 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 didn't think they could come up with the Logos, so they had to invent their own logoses, or their best guess. And so what happened is there were different schools of thought. This school says this is the logos of life, and this school says this is the logos of life, and so on and so forth, and they get together and debate. That was one of the things that they loved to do. Two schools that I think are applicable, because I think they're very similar ideology, uh, philosophies to what we deal with today. The first school was called the Epicureans. They believed, party hardy, man. Tomorrow you're going to die. Live it up. Because tomorrow you're gone, right? This is the only existence you have. When you die, you're gone. So live it up. Do the, be- do the best that you can now. And then the other school uh, that had prominence was the Stoics. And they said that you should live a moral life. That you should live a good life. And here's the reason why. If, you don't live a, if, if no one lived a moral life, then the world would be an unbearable place to live. So everyone should live a moral life. Everyone should try to be good and and have a good life because otherwise it would just be an unbearable place to live. But here's what's interesting about both groups. They still didn't have a true logos. They were just guessing. The Stoic says, we don't know what the logos is, but for the sake of us all having a decent life, let's be good boys and girls, right? Right? And the Epicurean said, we don't know what the true Logos is, we don't know what the meaning of life is, but let's just enjoy the life we do have. Both of them, at their core, do not know what the Logos of life is. And the reason why I think these two particular schools were so important is because I think we struggle this in the exact same way today. Most of us take an ostrich approach to finding the meaning of life. 
Let's just stick our heads in the sand and hope for the best at the end. Let's just ignore the issue. Let's live our lives and just hope it all works out in the end. This is why it's impolite for you to talk about religion in public. Okay? Because you're reminding everyone or being reminded that you really have no idea what the meaning of life is. And that's why it's impolite. Because it's, un- it's impolite to remind people that. I just remember one time, I, I probably have told you all this story before, when I was in college and I was a new believer, and I, I talked with, with a girl at the lunch table about what she believes, and we just kept talking about it. I was not confrontational. I, I, re- I really wasn't. And she starts crying. She just starts crying in the middle of it. Stop talking about these things. Because she was the ostrich. I'm just going to ignore it. Quit bringing it up. That's why, it's, that's why in, in common culture, it's, it's you're reminding people or being reminded, whichever side of the coin you are, that you have no idea. But what John teaches about the logos, the reason for life, is this. That it, the logos, the reason for life, is not a philosophy. It's not an idea. It's not an abstraction. It is a person. That the reason for life is God himself. Specifically referencing here Jesus Christ. That and if Jesus isn't the reason for living, then you have to invent one yourself and hope you're right. For example, um, if beauty is the goal of your life and you spend a lot of time on, on your appearance, the problem with that is you wrinkle one day. Um, if your goal in life is to have unbelievable relationships and friendships or, or, or marriage or children, then what happens is you put too much pressure on those relationships and you become a bitter, cynical person when they don't work out. Wrong logos, both times, right? Or um, if you success, there's plenty of these stories, but I heard one recently. I was listening to a sermon preparing for this and a guy says that he knew a guy who was at the top of his game, and he had a protege that wanted to be like this guy, and they became friends, and he just did everything the guy, other guy did because he wanted to be just like him because he was so successful. And then one guy, one day this guy comes into his apartment and is just broken because his, his marriage had ended and his life was just falling apart. And he, the other guy, the protege, realized that he had had a shallow view of what happiness was because here was the guy at the top of the field, and he was broken because his life was out of balance. What is the logos? Well, in this passage, it says that the Word was God. Listen to me carefully. Any version of Christianity that does not claim that Jesus Christ is the God is false Christianity. Okay? Now, Mormons are really nice people, and they've done some really nice things. I love their comedy channel. What's it called? A dry bar comedy, right? I, I love it. They've done some really good things. But they don't have the logos. They're, they're worshiping the wrong Jesus. And he's the only way. And we need to kindly and mercifully say to them, you're going the wrong way and your, dare, your, your, your destiny is perishing unless you believe the truth about who Jesus is. That he's a second member of the Trinity. That God, the Bible clearly describes this passage, clearly describes Josh in Genesis 1, clearly described that God is three and one at the same time. Let us make them in our image, right? That God is one 
and then one being in three persons at the same time. And what I'm not going to do right now is unpack the fullness of this doctrine of the Trinity. We don't have time. Okay? It would be a worthy endeavor, though. How can you fall in love with someone that you don't know? They, they might be real pretty, or they might have good prospects, but you have to know them. You've got to sit down at some point and say, tell me about yourself, if you're really going to fall in love with them. Right? God's the same way. You need to know who He is. Right? Um, but God is three in one at the, same, at the same time. And this is the part of God that's a mystery. God, we, and let me just say this. If, if you could fully comprehend the full detail of who God is, He wouldn't be worth your worship. You're a finite creature. You have a small mind in comparison. Right? All of us do. In comparison to God. There's aspects of Him that, that we are not going to be able to grasp that don't fit neatly into our categories. There's a mystery to it. Right? And as it should be. Secondly, God is fellowship. Look at this passage. It says that the word was with God. Or that word there, pros in the Greek, or towards God. Or that they're face to face. Right? I like the title of with. Um, that there is the God, there is a perfect union within himself. That they are joined and intimately interwoven. Know each other so well. Right? Marriages here on earth, if they're good ones, get a hint of this. There are times, if you have a good marriage, um, where you, you, get a, you get a hint of just a, almost divine closeness with that other person. Just a taste of it. But the problem is, you, if we're honest, you really don't know that much about yourself. And you really don't know the fullness of that other person either. Think about what it must be in, for inside of the Godhead where they are pure and holy and divine and know each other to an infinite depth. Jesus, it says in this passage, was the author of life. That everything in the world was created through Him. The book of Proverbs illustrates this when it says, uh, talking about wisdom personified. That when he established the heavens, I was there. And when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, I was there. And when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of worth, then I was beside him. Like a master workman, I was his daily delight, rejoicing in him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of men." Jesus was the agent of God to create everything that you see and everything that you don't. He created the physical world and the spiritual world, which is just as big as our natural universe that is beyond our mental capacity. He created them both through Christ. Okay? The magnitude of who He is. So imagine there are students in a classroom for a minute and they're debating a poem. Uh, you, maybe you were in English class back in the day, and this is how it went, right? And you, someone raised, what do you think he means by this sentence? student raises her hand, I think he means this. And then someone, what do, you, what do you think she means by this? I think she means this. And then the, the teacher can say, well, I've read these three books, and they've all debated what he means by this. And then all of a sudden, the author walks into the room and says, this is why I wrote it. What happens then? Debate closed, Right? Debate closed. He walks in there and he says this. Jesus is the author of all life and your life so he can lay claim to it. 
He is the best interpreter. And then finally, Jesus is the light for our darkened souls. John uh, classifies man as evil and dark, how Jesus brings light. All of that's next week, okay? So, this is the fullness of the deity of Jesus Christ. Secondly, this morning, the struggle with Jesus' divinity. Uh, interesting, I wrote a great book um, on prayer, and in it, this, uh, the author, who's a pastor, talks about this, uh, a science project that he did with his daughter. And um, he, he said this girl grew up in a Christian home and in a Christian school. And they were doing a science project, and, and they, they, you know, they got together, they prayed, and then they kind of went through the steps of the science project and, and all these things. And one of the steps was that they had to write down everything that they did for the science project. And so they got their little log book out, and, and they were, so they were about to start. And he said, well, the first thing we did is we, the first thing we did was we prayed, so write that down. And she said, Dad, we can't write that down. And he says, what do you mean we can't write that down? He goes, they don't want that. And then he immediately started thinking, who is they? Who is they? I'm, pause the story for a minute. Why are we struggling to believe in the deity of Christ? All right, time back in for the story. He realized that his daughter has lived in a Christian ghetto her whole life really involved in the church, goes to a Christian school, daddy's a pastor, and she still had this notion of they don't want Jesus in every area of our life, and particularly science. Okay, uh, this, this idea uh, that in Western culture uh, and in the atheistic communities uh, or atheistic nations of the world, that we have made this separation, which is you can't bring anything into the public square or even acknowledge there is a, phys- a spiritual world into the public square. And we made this separation between, between what we believe about God and eternal things and what we can see and touch and smell and examine under a microscope, and we've made such a separation with them that the two can't mix, and it's such a powerful influence on us that this girl who grew up in a Christian ghetto is doing a science project with her dad, and she says, they don't want that. This is why we're struggling to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Historically, we're an anomaly. Do you realize we're the only culture in the history of the world, the Western culture, not just America, that hasn't brought religion into the public square? That doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just a fact to note, right? That every other civilization in the history of the world brought religion into the public square except ours. Why? Well, the reason is, is because of a movement in the 17th and 18th century called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was an extremely powerful movement. And in the Enlightenment, um, the, the, the central idea was the idea that the human, human reason, human intellect, was the only way to understand the world. And the only thing that we could trust is the natural world. Whatever we can examine and reason in our mind is the only thing we could trust to be weird, and, I mean, to be weird, to be real. And um, Immanuel Kant, who was, one of, who was an Enlightenment thinker, a philosopher divided the world into facts and feelings. Okay, let me give you some example of facts. Uh, things that are, are true for everyone. That's what fact is under his definition. Under his definition is facts are things that are true for everyone. Okay, feelings are things that are true for me. Facts, 
things that are true for everyone, feelings, things that are true for me. So here are some facts. Um, facts are history, science, computers, cars, um, anything physical, nature, things like that. Those are facts, right? Here are feelings, love, spiritual, right and wrong, beauty, religion. And what the Enlightenment did was make a clean line between those two, saying they should not mix. And in the public square, you can only bring facts. You can't address these feelings, that he, the things that he's labeled, that is, as, as, fe- as feelings. And the reason we struggle with Jesus' divinity, and the reason that we wince whenever we're talking about it, right, um, is because there, the, the power in, of the Enlightenment has pervaded into almost every aspect of our culture. It's why whenever we read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, many people who would call themselves Christians goes, I just don't know if I can go that far with Jesus. Okay? Almost every aspect of our culture has been pervaded by this idea of secularism, in other words, fact and feeling. Secular, sacred, fact, feeling. You see what I'm saying? Um, it's ironic, this is a different sermon for a different day, but it's ironic because science as itself owes its birth to Christianity. Because Christianity says that nature isn't God. God is God who created nature. Every other religious system said nature is God. Paganism says nature is God, so there's no reason to study it. There's no reason to study it because it's God. It's mysterious. Christianity said God is God, Look, he made nature. Let's study it. You see what I'm saying? More, that's a different sermon. We'll do that later, right? But it's, it's a, everything that it, our education system, almost everything is screaming to this, that religion is private and personal and should not bleed into other areas of our lives. And that's wrong. Jesus is the light of the world, right? Through everything, we see him. Last illustration, then we'll move on to the final point, okay? The Jewish faith, has survived Pharaoh in the Exodus, the Philistines that almost destroyed David and the kingdom of Israel, the Syrians that attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and took people into exile, the Babylonians who attacked the northern southern kingdom and took all of the smart people into exiles, the Persians in the book of Esther who tried to commit genocide, the Romans who invaded, who, who destroyed the temple of God and killed people, Islam, the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the Russian Tsars, and Hitler and the Holocaust. But Orthodox Judaism has barely survived the Enlightenment. Only 10 to 15% of Jews today consider themselves Orthodox. This is the power of the Enlightenment. This is why we struggle with Jesus' deity. The final point is the implications of Jesus' deity. Okay? Um, one of the implications, and I could, there's a lot we could do here. We're running out of time, right? Um, but one of the implications of this passage, that he was the Word, that he was with God, that he was God, that everything was made through him, and that in him was life, the logos, the reason for life, the meaning of life, is in Jesus Christ. Some of the implication is for us to know that at the center of the universe is love. The foundational essence of the universe is love. That if God is not three, then the center of the universe is not love. Don't you want it to be? Don't you want to believe that? 
The center of the universe is love. You know, one of the other implications is that we need to cast out this belief of secular and sacred. Everything is sacred because God made everything. Right? He made it all. And do you under, the other, one of the other implications is to understand the centrality of Jesus that should be in your life. If he is the logos, the meaning of life, then he should be central. Is he? One of the other implications is that Jesus, like I mentioned in the big idea, is the only one who could lay claim on your life. The proper response to this kind of God is surrender. Because he's good. I'll get to that in a minute. The other thing, two other things I would say, and then I'll, I'll close. Please, I'm begging you, don't take the ostrich approach to life. I'll bury your head in the sand and hope it's going to get better in the end. Secondly, if, you have, if you're not taking that approach, praise God, quit being nice to people who are. I'm not saying being a jerk. But we're so addicted to niceness that we won't tell people the truth. Show them the logos. Show them the word. And the final implication is I want you, in light of Jesus' deity, to get a full grasp of the gospel. This will just take a second. Inside of the Godhead is a closer union than we can ever know. Now, I have three amazing children. And I can't imagine what it would do to me if I had to watch one of them die. I think, I, I'm not kidding, I think I would lose my mind. I really do. And that's me, as someone who's not divine, who doesn't know them as well as God does them. Now imagine God and the Father infinitely know each other and love each other. And the Father making the decision to send His Son to die and suffer His eternal wrath in a moment in time. And then imagine Jesus Christ on the cross for the first time in eternity feeling the displeasure of His Father. That's the gospel. He did that for you. Is there anyone else that you should submit to or surrender to than a God like that? If Jesus is God, then he has the only legitimate claim on your life. Father in heaven, as we bow and finish our worship service this morning, we thank you. You are the true meaning of life. Help our, the people that are around us who are who are close to us but far from, from you, help them to know that and maybe use us as an instrument and help us to know it and to worship you as God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.